I would invite you to review the brochure that you received this morning. It describes this project. It also describes the needs of the project. Read it carefully and pray about it. It's a joy being here with you. And we have been placed in a unique time. China's changing. It cannot help but change. Everyone in China knows it cannot stay where it is, but it does not know where it is going. It is a time of monumental shifts, and they are wide open. I hope you feel comfortable with this. I didn't realize what we were getting ourselves into, but we're sponsored by the Communist Committee for Propaganda and Information in <laughs> Beijing. <laughs> In all innocency, I didn't know that. One of our interpreters translated it off one of the banners you saw, and she was laughing, and she said, do you realize who's sponsoring you? I cannot read Chinese. I do not know. <laughs> and it turned out to be the Ministry of Education of all of the universities in Beijing, the Communist Committee for, again, propaganda. And interestingly, in Chinese, propaganda means missionary work. <laughs> Gets better and better. Communist Committee for Propaganda and Information, and then the Association of Counseling and Research have invited this over. And we believe we're in a strategic place to influence this culture for good with Christian values. And also we've had the opportunity to see in a nice, slow advance people coming to know the Lord, the professors coming to know the Lord, and that is wonderful. Truth is immensely powerful in this world because confusion breaks the heart. We'll be looking at Genesis 2. And the power of Scripture and the power of Christianity is this. It tells us who we are. A human being gestates in the womb nine months. A human being has to be raised by parents and a human being in this process of being raised is pretty clueless as to what it means to be human. We need the Bible. We need God to tell us who we are so we can participate in the culture of heaven. Here are the topics we teach. If you notice number three, it's dealing with a performance-based culture. The Chinese know that's killing them, and we savagely attack that in our presentations. But where we'll be looking at carefully this morning is number nine, gender differences. We're working now in five different cities in China, and the material we're producing will actually be used in Mumbai, India, too, which adds to the fun of all of this. But we've been lecturing in universities in Beijing and outside of Beijing. The picture on the screen is a lecture in Qingdao. That is the port city where the Olympic sailing events were held. And the topic was gender differences in homosexuality and lesbianism. We had the largest lecture hall in the, in the university. It was packed, 500 to 600 students. All the stairs were paved with students. If you look carefully, you can see students lining the walls. The lecture went for an hour and a half, and the questions went for another hour and a half. The Communist Party 
and the psychology teachers are not in favor of lesbianism and homosexuality, but they do not know how to address it. This world is in a cauldron of confusion, and it is a wondrous opportunity for Christians to say, a human being is made in the image of God. To be fully human, you need the complementary genders of male and female in healthy, compassionate, loving relationships. That is what it means to be human. That's a simple statement, but it has tremendous power in this world when it is said with confidence based upon the Word of God. I'd like to give you a little test. I'm going to show you seven expressions, and you decide what that expression means Keep track of the ones you get right. This has to do with gender differences. Keep track of the ones you get right. Seven of them. And what does that expression mean? Does that mean decisive? Does that mean amused? Does that mean bored? Does that mean aghast? Decisive. Number two. Does that mean Doubtful? Does that mean affectionate? Does that mean aghast? Does that mean playful? Doubtful. Does that mean aghast? Does that mean fantasizing? If you don't know what fantasizing mean, means, turn to somebody of the opposite gender, ask them, and they'll be embarrassed to death. Fantasizing, alarmed, or impatient? If that facial expression is on anyone else than your wife, run out of the room. <laughs> is this dominant? Is this friendly? Is this horrified? Is this guilty? Is this... Apologetic, is this defiant, is this curious, or is this, can somebody read that? Well, ignore that one. <laughs> it's one of the others. It's defiant. <coughs> Ashamed, confident. Disquieted or joking? Confident. Embarrassed, guilty, fantasizing, concerned. Concerned. Let's back up. Now, those of you who got seven correct, will you stand? Well, you need to look at the human face sometimes during your day. <laughs> Those of you who got six, will you stand? Okay, okay, okay. Now, if you look around quickly, the majority are women. Those who got five, will you stand? Stay standing.
slight majority women, from what I can figure out. Those who got five, four, please stand. Okay. In the majority of times, almost all the time, women do far better at this than men. Please be seated. Now, why? When a newborn female is born, it looks at faces. When a newborn male is born, it looks for the remote control. (laughs) It looks at movement. And the conclusion is facial recognition is actually wired into a baby. You're born with the ability, and women are born with a better ability at reading the human face. The retina of males is designed for noticing movement. The retina of females are designed for texture and color. Quite frankly, my wife dressed me this morning. I can't tell. If I dressed myself, I would look like a contented street person. But I take it by faith that she's doing a good job. Because one out of 10 men are colorblind, and only a mere one out of 211 women are colorblind. The woman's ability to recognize color and texture is far superior. When I was in kindergarten and first grade, one of the great mysteries and the oddity was this really ate at me. I I was really concerned. Why do you need a crayon box of 36 colors? That was just beyond me. Why do they have these big boxes? All you need is six, and that's too many. (laughs) Too, too many. And then I found out that those extra colors are for the little girls. (laughs) Young girls use 10 or more crayons per picture. Girls draw subjects. Boys use at most six crayons per picture. And boys draw action. A different orientation, very young age. There is a wonderful book, Why Gender Matters, that if you're interested in this subject, you should read. It's just masterful. And here's a chart I made based on what's in that book about young children. When it comes to friends, girls typically have two to three deep friendships. Boys have two to 12 because we are born to be superficial. We we have a lot of them. As my wife would sometimes say to me, David, you don't have any friends. Because she has friends all the way from fourth grade. I can't remember who I met in fourth grade. She has friends all the way back in fourth grade. And what I say is, I have thousands of friends. Half of them I don't remember their names. Focus. Girls, when they meet, are each other. Focus for boys, the activity. Games, an excuse to meet. Did you notice when it was Christine who talked about the Super Bowl? She was bored with it. (laughs) Games, an excuse to meet. For boys, central. Conversation, central. 
for boys. Who needs it? It's unnecessary. It's nice we have voices. Sing sad country western songs. Hierarchy. Among girls, hierarchy is destructive. Among boys, hierarchy is critical lest they destroy each other. Self-revelation. I think this is a fascinating one. And I've asked my graduate students, my women graduate students, is sharing a secret a true mark of friendship? And they would go, go, of course, yes it is. Yes it is. You ask a guy, is sharing a secret a true mark of friendship? Ah, it's none of my friend's business. Why should I tell anybody my secrets? That's a male. Profoundly different in orientation. Why are these physiological and psychological realities so? When we're in China, this is where we begin when we teach values. Because values protect reality. Values protect reality. But we have to know what reality is, and this reflects biblical realities. Here's another thing. There's two ways of experiencing sympathy and empathy in the human brain. The human brain is a colossal thing. There is a system called the temporal parietal junction system, and it meets right about here in the center of your brain, and it gives you the ability to analyze emotions without feeling those emotions. There's another system called the mirror neuron system, which allows you to feel what other people are feeling and to think emotionally. Men, by great preponderance, use the first system instinctively. They can use the second one. They just have to be trained. But the first one they use instinctively. Women use the mirror neuron system instinctively. And they have to learn how to use the second one. And in a sense, you can see how the genders are meant to complement each other, even on how they process sympathy. Who are we really? We live in a world that is profoundly confused about what does it mean to be human, what does it mean to be male, what does it mean to be female, what does it mean to be married. Our culture is so confused that it almost shrugs its shoulders over the issue of the definition of marriage. Any gender will do, which is a profound rejection of the wisdom of the ages and a profound rejection of physiological reality and a profound rejection of biblical truth. Let us see, if you will, turn over to Genesis chapter 1 and let us take a look at biblical truth. It's fun to know I'm part of a series with your dear pastor. When we were in the PhD program together, I was always awestruck at how diligent he was. And I suspect 
He still is just an incredibly hardworking guy. This very hardworking, fine man. You're a fortunate people. Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering continually over the surface of the waters. You have in verse 2, the Spirit of God introduced waiting. It could have been waiting for one second or a trillion years, we're not told. But waiting for what will occur shortly, where the Father and the Son step into the act of the reformation of the earth, the creation of the earth for humanity, taking what is there and preparing it for humanity. And so, day one, God speaks, says, let there be light. Day two, sky and water. Day three, earth. Day four, sun, moon, and stars. Day five, birds and fish. Day six, animals and humanity. And in verse 26, then God said, let us make humanity in our image. Humanity is referring to the male and the female. (coughs) According to our likeness, in order that they might rule, make them like us so they might rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that is creeping on the earth. God created the man, referred to Adam. God created the man. In his own image, in the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. The man is given prominence. The earth (coughs) is placed relative to the universe, and humanity is placed relative to the earth, and the man is brought on the stage, the male. He is created first, and both the man and the woman are reflecting the image of God. In a real sense, you could say chapter 1 is the chapter of the man. But when we turn to chapter 2, we enter into the chapter of the woman. But before we enter into chapter 2, we've looked at physiological reality. Now let's talk about some theological realities. In Genesis 1, the Spirit of God is introduced as a helper, as he is throughout all of Scripture. In Genesis 1, according to John chapter 1, we have the Father and the Son talking to each other. Let us make humanity. Everything that was made was made through the Son by the command of the Father. And the Father and the Son are in an eternal relationship. Scripture says very clearly, He is the only begotten Son of God, and he was and continually will be deity. He is divine. He never had a beginning. He was never born, but he was always the eternal generated son of God. The father generated an eternal son. The son is eternally generated. 
Now, this is very important to understand what it means to be female and male. Angels cannot generate. Contrary to what you see in the Bible bookstores, in the Bible, all angels are male. They cannot generate. Only human beings can generate to physically reflect a reality of the divine. Masculine and feminine qualities are reflected in the three members of the Trinity. Scripture is very straightforward, very comfortable with attributing feminine aspects to God. Book of Isaiah, Yahweh, personal name of God, Yahweh speaks and he says, a nursing mother may forget the babe at her breast, but I will never forget you. God uses a powerful feminine image of himself unapologetically because he is more compassionate, more loving than the most compassionate and loving of women. Now, if I turned to Pastor John Venema and said, Pastor John, you just remind me of a nursing mother. (laughs) If he was a real man, he'd blush. Because culturally and relationally, we don't say those things. But we can say those things of our God. Because both in the Old and the New Testament, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit reflect masculine and feminine characteristics. And the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit are profoundly relational. Now file that away, because that will become very, very important at the end of this sermon. So the father and the son in a loving relationship, and what shows up? A couple made to govern, created to govern, but male and female, two members of the Trinity are speaking to each other, two members of humanity show up, two members of the Trinity having masculine and feminine characteristics, and two members of the Trinity pouring the feminine characteristics of the divine into the woman, pouring the masculine characteristics of the divine into the man. They have woven together the majesty, the mystery, the beauty of the Trinity, and poured it into humanity so that we are physical analogies and representations of the divine. I hope this makes you feel special, because you are. There's nothing else like you like this in the universe. The angels peer down and go, what a curiosity. The only creatures in the universe that can reflect adequately Trinitarian truth, even in their generation of their young. And God saw, Genesis 1, 31, all that he had made, and look at it. It is exceedingly good. Then we enter into the chapter of the woman, a garden, and in the garden it's watered by four rivers. And in this garden there is gold and silver bdellium, great potential mineral wealth, a wondrous supply of potential for humanity. humanity. 
God does not begrudge humanity anything. Carol and I went to Rome and saw the Sistine Chapel after it had been cleaned up. And this is the ceiling. Everyone notices Adam because he's embarrassing. But hardly anyone may notice the blonde under the arm of God. That blonde looks exactly like Eve, the person who is driven out of the garden. And it is quite striking that humanity is present. The woman, the relational expert under the arm of God, the man having God pointing at him, giving him a laundry list of stuff to do. And together, you've got humanity reflected in that picture. Now, what does it mean to be male? If you go over to Genesis chapter 2, we're told very clearly that God forms man first of the dust of the ground. He forms him the way a potter would form a clay pot. And he breathed into his nostrils. He did not do this for any other creature. Showing the specialness of the man, he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living soul, a living sensate being. Then the Lord God planted the garden, put him in it, gave him a job description, and told him what not to do. Adam was formed when Eve was not there. And the emphasis on the passage is purposes. A man without a noble purpose will become a disaster. A man, when he does not have a noble purpose, will waste his time on entertainment and fight depression. A male is made to find a noble purpose. Eve, what does it mean being female? Genesis 2 through 24. And verse 18 begins the introduction to Eve. Verse 18 says, Then the Lord God, Yahweh Elohim, the Lord God said, It is not beneficial for the man, the man, to be alone. I will make him an oxer, oxer. An oxer, you can spell it A-Z-E-R, and it's a very important word. It occurs about 18 times in the Hebrew Bible as a participle or a noun. And it's used most of the time, about 15 times of God himself as the great helper. It doesn't mean assistant. doesn't mean flunky. It means a great helper like God. For example, in the book of Psalms, it says Yahweh is our shield, Megani, our shield, and Ezri, our Azer, helper. The term means a magnificent helper. And what area is she supposed to help in? It is not beneficial for the man to be alone. I need my wife to point out to me when I'm lonely. Most men can't figure that out. 
They get so preoccupied, they need another human being to say, I think you're lonely. And the great weakness of the male is in the area of relationship. The great strength of the woman is in the area of relationship. The great strength of the male is to find a noble purpose, whereas a couple, wherein a couple can pursue something grand for God and not just waste their days. It is not beneficial for a man to be alone. There have been two great studies done in the last 25 years, worldwide studies on who on the average are the most happy people on the planet. And the four groups they divided humanity into was married men, married women, single men, single women. And they went out literally all over the world, asked hundreds of thousands of men and women to find out who on the average was happiest. Guess who on the average are the happiest people on this planet? Married men. Guess who's the second happiest group on the planet? Single women. (laughs) And they think they desperately need a man. Guess who's the third happiest group on the planet? Married women. Guess who are unhappier than the protozoa? (laughs) Single men. So if I were a single man, I would find a single woman and say this. Honey, that's called male charm. Honey, let's make a deal. You are a relational creature, and you need a trophy to make you feel good about yourself. Called a husband. Then you'll feel really worthwhile. I volunteer. Your bliss will increase for two weeks. My bliss will increase the length of our marriage. But statistically, I'm destined to die about seven or eight years before you. So I will fulfill that statistic, and then you can go back to being happy again. (laughs) It will lengthen my life, even though I'll die sooner anyway. It'll make me happier, and you'll have a trophy. And frankly, there's a lot of women who would grab that. Because they're wired for relationship. They are. There's a doubter out there. The helper, the relational expert to address the loneliness of life, the consultant. The the word helper is tricky because there is no subordination in that term. Now, there is a headship in marriage that Scripture teaches. It's very straightforward that a man has to accept the headship within his family because if he does not, he'll find other things that will be a waste of his time other than his family. He has to choose headship. But the word azer has no connotation at all of subordination. It is a tremendous term, so that's why I would translate it consultant just to avoid the idea of there being a hierarchy with that term. God is described as an achzer, and so is the woman. And then in chapter 3, Adam gives Eve the magnificent compliment of calling her raya, 
Gaya is Hebrew for life because of the incredible ability to bear life. As Eve said with the birth of her first child, I've begotten a man-child with Yahweh. I have done something divine. I have participated in generation. So this is the chapter of the woman. Very interesting chapter. In the chapter, there is no explicit need expressed for the woman. There is an explicit need, a weakness, if you will, for the man. The woman is given a divine title. The man is made in the image of God, but the woman is given a divine title. The woman is presented as an art form. The word for making the man is yatsar, and it means to make like a clay pot out of the dust of the ground, out of clay. While the word for the woman is bana, which is used for making a house, making a temple, making a palace, making a beautiful wall, making a decorated column, and making a family. Profound term. An art form. I am sure the angels sang when Adam showed up. We just have no evidence for it. But when Eve showed up, God had previously walked Adam through a zoo and said, do you want the horse to be your ox there? Do you want the eagle to be your ox there? And he kept saying, no, 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 no. The last thing he saw before he went unconscious was a hippopotamus. <laughs> you were not there. I wasn't either, but I'm sure it's true. The last thing he saw was a hippopotamus. And God said, ox there? And Adam looked scared and said, not a chance. He went unconscious into a profoundly deep sleep, a revelatory sleep. And when he came out of that sleep, he saw Eve, and he came out with a gorgeous 10th century B.C. Hebrew poem. Magnificent. The woman elicited poetry. And then she is given the magnificent title of Gaia. The man said, this is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called a female man. In the context, that's probably what it means. Because she was taken out of Adam. For this reason, a man shall abandon his father and his mother and be joined loyally to his wife, and they shall become the closest of relatives or one flesh. We've looked at the physiological realities. We've had a short theological reflection, and we've looked at the biblical realities of chapter 2. But now let's blend these together. Because the purpose of humanity and the worth of being human is sadly neglected in this world. One of the saddest sights I ever saw in China was a dead woman in the middle of an intersection who had been struck on a bike. They had thrown her coat over her head, but there was a pool of blood. All the cars were whizzing by, 
Nobody stopped. I was almost in a state of shock. I wanted to get out and go over and hold the corpse's hand because I thought, this is inhuman. This is horrible. Leave a body in the street to be run over again. The bus driver was off in the distance on a cell phone. Nobody was around her. Because in that culture, to touch a dead body is bad luck. Not protect the corpse, not be present even in death, but just bad luck. How sad. A human being is made in the image of God. A human being can do things that are divine. For example, the Spirit of God is the great helper. And Adam was placed as the great helper in the garden as the Spirit was placed as the great helper of the earth. The Father generating an eternal Son. And we have the privilege as parents of generating a child. I never truly understood the love of God the Father until I looked into the face of my daughter and into the face of my son. And then I began to realize the love of the Father for me And I began to realize the love of the father for his own son. And when a family has a baby, in a very small way, they're participating in the pleasures of the Trinity on a physiological, physical basis, but they're reflecting the divine. The son being eternally generated. Every person here has been generated. And you have the privilege of being a child and then becoming an adult offspring. And if you grew up in a happy, loving home, it was a fabulous experience. And if not, it was the curse of your life. But in that experience of being a child, you're reflecting something about the divine. Masculine and feminine qualities. The masculine qualities of the divine have been poured into the man. The feminine qualities of the divine have been poured into the woman. And you, O men, and you, O women, are meant to be profoundly relational in a complementary way. I read a quote in the book, which I think is completely true. The quote said, many couples live with each other for 40 years and they still do not understand the difference between the genders. They just assume the things that bother them are the peculiarities of the other person. Those peculiarities may be the God-created peculiarities of the gender. And the way we appreciate it is to step sympathetically into the other person's world, to understand them on their own terms. Don't condemn, don't deface, but simply learn and appreciate because the stamp of God is carried by the genders. And it is our privilege as males to go on a lifelong exploration of what is the feminine. And it is your privilege as women to go on a lifelong exploration to discover the masculine. That does not mean at all that anyone need marry. But what we all need is to develop a profound sympathy for one another. For God has a profound sympathy and delight in us. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for the power of your word, the truth of reality. 
and the fact that it is unfettered, it cannot be held back, and it is capable of changing one person, a city, and a culture, and a world. For that we thank you and ask your blessing in Jesus' name. Amen. This has been a production of Grace Community Church of Visalia. For more information, go to our website at www.gccvisalia.org. Or for more sermons, go to gccvisalia.org slash podcast.